0: Well, welcome back as we head into our third hour this afternoon. It's a delight and privilege and honor to have in studio with me as we do most Wednesdays. Congressman John Shattuck represented the old 4th Congressional District here in Arizona for 16 years in Congress, was part of the Gingrich Revolution and the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. He is uh, currently the head of Shattuck Associates. And uh, we love uh, we love sending you all home on Wednesdays with Congressman Shattuck. Good to see you, sir. It's great to be here. I love— We'll get to some contemporary politics, a lot of it in a moment. And I didn't warn you I was going to ask you this question, and maybe there's nothing to it. But I was uh, with a mutual friend of ours the other day and walked into this great bookstore I didn't even know existed on uh, 36th and Indian School. It's called the Book Gallery. I don't know if you've ever been there. I it's have not. It's the size of a furniture store. It's huge. It's wonderful. They've got first editions. They've got leather bounds. They've got contemporary. You could spend hours there. For those that miss old bookstores, I can't say enough about it, or the owner who is very helpful, Mike Riley, I believe his name is. So this was just, uh, John, this was just destined to happen. It was after dinner, so <laughs> I had to be lined to the bathroom real quick, and on my way out of the bathroom... Son of a gun! There was a table display of books, and the first one staring me in the face, right on top, was a copy of a book by your daddy, um, uh, Goldwater on the Goldwater nineteen sixty four race. What was it called? How Goldwater lost. No, uh, what happened to what, Goldwater? Ha- what happened to Barry Goldwater? What happened to Barry Goldwater? And I look, I picked it up because, of course, I look everything Goldwater. I like everything Shattuck. It was pristine. I opened it up and there was an insignia, a signature by your daddy. I meant to bring it in today. No doubt you have many copies of this. And I was reading it and it's a fantastic history of the 1960s and a fantastic history of that presidential race. But on the back flap, this is what I wanted to ask you about. It said, among other things, your dad was the author of a controversial book, How to Win Elections. Why would that have been a controversial book?
1: Well, because it
0: actually taught people how to win.
1: (laughs) It actually did encounter some controversy uh, for a a now you would think bizarre reason, but maybe not. The first edition in the first edition of How to Win an Election, um, my dad was teaching or teaches in the book and trying to get across the point that the most influential force in any election, is not a particular speech or a particularly good TV ad or radio ad or position that the candidate takes, but is rather the influence of a friend. And it happened, uh, the book was published, uh, with the Vietnam War and Mao Tung out there in the future, and it talked about how, uh, I think it was Mao Tung had an organizing principle that if you gave him one man in a village, he could take over the whole village okay. if he understood what it was he had to do and that it was the personal organizing of the of the people in that village to this particular cause. And and in the book, my dad cites Mao huh, And, of course, uh-huh. readers about uh-huh. Goldwater, people uh-huh. attracted to – uh, Barry Goldwater's campaign manager, reading a book called How to Win by Barry Goldwater, who won his first Senate race when it shouldn't have happened. There were eight Democrats for every one Republican right. in the state. That's right. And so some on the hard right thought it was terrible uh, and outrageous and, and unacceptable How interesting. for Stephen Shattig, a conservative, a professed conservative, yeah. the author, the ghostwriter for Barry Goldwater yeah. and the and the guy who managed his first campaign for the U.S. Senate and had gotten him successfully elected to give any credit to Mao Tse-Tung. Aha.
0: Uh-huh. OK. Uh, so that's what So it. Okay. that's how it
1: became <laughs> controversial. controversial. And actually, the, that book sold so well, there was a second edition. And in the second edition, as an accession to those people and their criticism, the Mao Tse-Tung the message of organizing people uh, remained in the book, but without attribution to Mao eight tongue.
0: Fantastic. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm learning a lot from this book. I thought I knew a lot. I'm learning even more. Um, Barry Gold your daddy wrote Barry Gold had a thrice a week syndicated column. I yeah. didn't realize it was three times a week. That's a lot of writing. And your daddy wrote those columns. And in the very first The L.A. Times was the original syndicator of it. That's where it first went. It ended up in over 150, maybe even 200 papers nationwide. And interestingly enough, you never would see this today. Uh, Barry Goldwater, under his byline, he actually said in the very first column, these columns will be written by Stephen Shattuck. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> he actually said these columns will be written by Stephen Shattuck. <laughs> he was just That's that what honest. what you would do today. Know, would, but right. that,
1: that was Goldwater. Goldwater right. was going to tell it the way it was. Yeah. Which is, they, I mean, people think the key to hit to Barry Goldwater's success was how hardcore conservative it was, but it was really how. Uh, bluntly truthful he was. And people would go – actually, the phrase I recall was people would say, well, I don't agree with everything he says, but he tells you exactly what he thinks. He he will be honest with you.
0: It's funny. We say we want that in our politicians, but we don't. But we don't, right? We say we want them to be straight talkers, and then the moment they say something that offends a a peculiar interest or perhaps an interest group – um, they're toast. Right. It's an interesting dichotomy in the American voter's brain. They say they want conviction politicians. Now, of course, obviously a conviction politician who, what, agrees with you or you agree with something north of 80 percent, I would assume. But the moment that blunt talk offends a particular part of the movement, um, they're trash.
1: It's a part of one of the puzzles of politics. Yeah. Um. One of the things and and this, I think, is a problem, if not a problem, it is the problem that faces the Republican Party right now is the refusal of some believers to understand the concept that politics is the art of the possible. So so uh, a lot of people want the country to move dramatically to the right. If anything, when my class got elected under Newt, people expected us to go and change Washington. Yeah. And of course, the review is Washington changed us. And Matt Salmon had a famous phrase about that, which was it's pretty hard to turn around a super tanker in the Panama Canal. Uh-huh. And that's what people expected. But the reality is, if you want to play the game of politics seriously, You need to focus on the art of the possible. And that means you've got to be calculated or thoughtful in the amount of change you seek over the amount of time. Uh, Phil Graham, whom I admired and who was in Congress when I uh, I think he was still in Congress when I first got there, um, had a, a, a kind of a guiding motto for legislation, which my class. Studied, but sometimes didn't honor. And that was, you know, fight as hard as you can for as long as you can to get as much as you can and then take what you can get and live to fight again. Uh, And if you look at Phil Graham's legislative career and his fight for the conservative cause, I would argue he did that. Lots of times, and we're going into this right now, we're right back at another government shutdown over spending again. The question is can the political leaders of the nation go further than the people of the nation? Which is to say, can they in Washington get the other side to do what it doesn't want to do if the public? doesn't demand that that be done. And so the job is not just persuading your colleagues in Washington, we need to stop overspending, but it's it's very much what Edmund Burke described in the role of a legislator, which was voting your conscience. And then if the public was unhappy, if they didn't understand why you voted the way you did or in today's vernacular, if they thought you compromised too much, it was your job to come home and convince your electorate that what you had done was the principled thing that got you as far as you could. And admittedly, there were lots of times when I voted for stuff I hated in Washington, probably uh, eight times out of ten, maybe nine times out of ten, the votes I'd take on the floor I hated. But you that nonetheless, that my voting record was as far to the right, just about as you could get. And the point was, you can only go as far as you can lead the public.
0: Let me pick up on that when we come back. I love that Edmund Burke line. It's too often forgotten by voters as much as elected officials. Uh, John Shattig is my guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leapson Show. Congressman John Shattig is my guest. You wanted to make a um, a slight additional point about very Goldwater and your daddy's columns, uh, right. which were syndicated in the in the late fifties and early sixties.
1: Two quick points uh, for those who are interested in looking it up: the name, the title of the column is "Where Do You Stand, Sir," uh-huh. and so it was Goldwater explaining why he would vote, for example, no on the sixty-four Civil Rights Act or other controversial votes. Uh, you made the point that uh, early in the series, Senator Goldwater acknowledged that my dad would. Write the columns. I don't want to leave the impression that that it was my dad's columns that actually appeared. Senator Goldwater would read them all,
0: uh, make slight edits. They knew the topic,
1: there. make yeah. edits. Yeah. Say, yeah. well, wait, that's not quite right. This was more the way it was. So it was Senator Goldwater's column, uh, the original drafts, uh, and per, perhaps most of the substance was from my dad because they thought very much alike.
0: I so wished I brought the book in with me. I meant to. I meant to. I meant to. And then I didn't because I have been. Um, the, he was just such an elegant writer. That in the book The Remnant, your daddy was a very, very, very gift. As someone who studies this kind of thing, I mean, he just he was an elegant writer. Um, he yeah, he had
1: written for a while for RKO Pictures that's in what Los it,
0: Angeles. That's he must, yeah, and,
1: and and in Hollywood, and decided he didn't want that lifestyle. So it's it's, got a, out.
0: it's elegant writing. No, he he left Hollywood for an exciting lifestyle. You made a point. That, I think, is uh, worth, worth, worth distilling just a few more moments on. Edmund Burke, and I, I think it's, it's to the electors of the sheriffs of Bristol, if memory serves, where he's talking about representative democracy and what a representative owes his constituents. I don't have the quote exactly in front of me, John, but you brought it up. You probably know it better than I do. And he says there's always the debate as to whether the representative is to be merely the voice and merely the vote of the majority of those he represents. And he goes into this for about two or three sentences and concludes, no, no, the elected representative owes his constituents his judgment, Absolutely, which is to say you're not just a rubber stamp for what 51 percent of those who elected you to office say.
1: And, and that's exactly right. Which that's, is actually the
0: whole. Anyway, go ahead. There's a deep it, philosophical point about republicanism versus democracy in there, too.
1: There is a, a I don't know if it's a speech or a, an article, a, a, a written statement, I think, entitled Duty to Constituents, in which he explains exactly that. Most, most or maybe lots, I, I suspect it is a majority of Americans think, well, representatives are to simply go to Washington and vote However, they believe their constituents would want them to vote. And uh, he makes the point, uh, Burke makes the point that that's not right, that your job, because you are expected to study and learn all of the issues or the issues being voted upon in much greater depth than the superficial uh, understanding your constituents have, is to exercise your judgment. And if it just so happens that your judgment then coincides with the majority of your constituents. That's great, but that that's not a cop-out, that you have the obligation not to just vote the way they would, but rather to use your philosophy and your judgment to vote what you believe is right. And if it doesn't comport with what your constituents want, then the rest of your job is to go home and explain to them and educate them why you would vote a particular way that they may disagree with. And and for me, when I was serving, that was kind of the fun, was coming back home and saying, ah, you think I should have voted the other way because of X, but did you know? And then the fun was telling them the sneaky little stuff that they'd put in that, of course— Uh, The authors had not told the – even. it's not only that they didn't tell the public about the sneaky stuff they put in. It's that leadership would hide hide from membership the sneaky little stuff they put in.
0: This has so many elements to it. First, the easy one, which is people will see in movie depictions of Washington or D.C. or – television series depictions of Washington, D.C., where someone's trying to get a congressman, perhaps, or a senator lobbying them for a certain vote. And you will often see the congressman or senator say, I wish I I could, but the sixth district I represent and -and so-and-so would never have it. So that's obviously in direct conflict with this whole point and how you get corruption and how you get – yes, how you get corruption. The deep point underlying it Delineates the difference that listeners and callers in this audience and your constituents over the years are keenly attuned to, which is the difference between a Republican form of government or a republic and a democracy. This was what was so silly about Ross Perot in 1992, where he said, "You just want to have a button on everyone's television, and everyone in America gets to vote for what they want." That 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 is not what we are. No, and that's exactly what I think underlie under underpinned what Edmund Burke was trying to say. We don't govern that way. We don't govern by sheer majoritarian sentiment. We have something a little more important here, which is judgment, which is reason, which is the concept of even one might say political right. Uh, I, I I think that's there, John. And then I'll throw a third element at you, which is You look at some of the things the Democratic Party today stands for and keeps doubling down on, which are abject and objective failures, whether it's the kinds of stuff that goes on in California with the pensions or the chronic homeless situation or any number of ridiculous uh, environmental uh, and bureaucratic schemes and handouts that have – and are fast-destroying – Vast communities in California, if not the whole state. And I sometimes wonder if the Democrats who are elected to office in California don't understand that Burkean point, because some of them are smart. Maybe a lot of them are smart. And you know they have to know better. I get this a lot in the context of the illegal immigration problem. How can the Democrats continue to let this go on when they see it suppresses wages? It drives crime. It drives, um, it drives uh, up budgets. It drives up education. It drives up health care costs. It drives up drug use. How can they continue to do it? And I think it's because the Democrats, who some of – some of whom are, are are reasonable in their own right, refuse to do the reasonable thing because they know their constituents wouldn't tolerate it, because their constituents are far to the left of where a lot of them are. That's a thesis I'm throwing out at you. I don't know if I'm right or if I said anything that made sense. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me take the commercial break and have you pick up on it. That way I can right? take another swing at it when we come back. My point is there are Democrats – in office who I think don't understand the Burkean lesson and feel that they have to kowtow to their base, which is in many cases, not in all, but in many cases, maybe just some far to the left of where they are. I'll have you pick up on all of that when we come right back. And it kind of gets into an interesting area of a discussion over populism, which the Republican Party is going through, too. John Shattig and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Shattig is my guest. John, do the Democrats, in short, do the Democrats um, understand the Burkean point that they owe judgment and not just a kowtow to the most extreme forms of their base, a base which is extreme? um, Because not all Democrats are as loopy as their base. And it is hard to explain, particularly on things like the immigration issue. How so many Democrats can be so blithe about it?
1: I think the answer is no, absolutely not. But then it's not just Democrats. I would say I would venture a guess that uh, less than half, maybe less than a third, of the members I served with had ever thought about the debate we're having right now. The discussion of are you just supposed to vote the way the your your district would vote if they collectively debated and decided the issue? Or are you supposed to exercise your judgment? They may have had feelings about it, but I, 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 would, I would be stunned if more than half of them had ever read what Edmund Burke wrote or contemplated the issue. Um, unfortunately, uh, there, and I don't know the numbers here, but there was a minority who was motivated by a burning desire for power and who gave no thought to anything except what would maximize their power, mm-hmm. period. Um, there, On the Democrat side, there were quite a few who, who would actually be puzzled at the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, for example, uh, an Arizona news reporter say to me, well, what do you mean you aren't going to vote? Or, or how can you even think about not voting to increase the minimum wage? Uh, uh, that's just that, that's not even worth thinking about. Of course, you have to vote to increase the minimum wage because those people need the money. And this particular reporter was literally incapable of thinking the second step, which is, well, what are the consequences of raising the minimum wage? It was the people at the bottom rung of the ladder need more money to live on, ergo, of course you would vote for a minimum wage. And that reporter would have applied the same rule to any welfare benefit without contemplating either its cost, and you look at some of the legislation that passed at the beginning of the Biden term, uh, uh, nobody contemplated its cost. We were in the middle of a pandemic and cost wasn't to be thought about, except that we're now paying the price for that. And I, I think... Early on, everybody was talking about inflation going up. Now they're beginning to really feel it because it's sinking in to the price of everything um, and, and genuinely impacting their lives. But but I think lots and lots of members of Congress and particularly members on the left side or on the Democrat side never thought about the consequences. They only thought about. The primary, you know, if you called it the Anti-Inflation Act, well, then, of course, Hence. they were for it, period. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm against inflation, so therefore I'm for this bill. And they never thought about, well, wait a minute, the principal cause of inflation is government spending. So being for government spending is is actually doing harm. And now the president is, himself has come out and said, well, it really didn't do anything about inflation. It, it was about spending on these other things that I wanted to spend on and he essentially admitted that he, that, that the title of the act was a lie. So, uh, no, I don't think they think about, I don't think most members think about what their duty is. Occasionally they slow down and say, okay, now we've got a real tough balance here between uh, good and harm. Uh, but uh, many of them, I, like, like I said, are just motivated by what will give us more power. And that, of course, to the extent that, that many of my colleagues on the left were deeply philosophically motivated. The deep philosophy on their side was these Americans, they're not smart enough to make these decisions for themselves. Uh, I got into an argument after I left Congress with a lawyer in my first law firm when I left the Congress who said, and this is a very talented lawyer with lots of skills that did, I think a labor practice pretty much. He said, You can't let the American people decide on their own health care provider. You can't let them pick their own health insurance. You can't. The only way we can handle health insurance is if our employer buys it for us. You know, that kind of cynicism about the notion of uh, individual responsibility says they believe in a collectivist society where the intelligentsia makes the decisions for the people
0: it's a it's a paternalism and a cynicism yes uh, that you see often uh in questions uh over representing racial minorities and you're seeing it now in education all the time with this notion that the parents should have less and less say and leave it up to the experts. Let insanity me pick sanity it's insanity, throw it away ins- from parents insanity and they're running. You know, hell, they, they hell on wheels toward to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like a you, fly. Yeah. Just like because you're the
1: parents, you don't know better what's, what, what's right or good for your child. Let me pick up on that. Incredible.
0: Hey, during the break, John and I were just ta- – John Shattig, uh and I were just talking about the way the, the – the, this very skillful, frankly, skillful way – the left uh uses language uh they took Orwell not as a warning but as a how to manual yes, and um we have a saying around here. mutual friend of yours and mine Steve um sent me a t shirt it's over on my desk i'll show it to you on the way out it says m o f a which stands for make Orwell fiction again <laughs> and we we're just talking how they you know they use phrases like gender affirming, which is really gender changing sex changing
1: it's it's body mutilating it's, bu- it really, it's body, it's body muti- mutilating it's, it's body mutilating that's it's a better way to put it. it's making money off of mutilating mu- mutilating people's bodies absolutely because they have a, a, a an intellectual or a uh, a conscience
0: i i think most of it is a slogan. temporary view and i think most of it is not only a temporary view it's a transient view and i think a lot of it is based on uh, peer pressure and a lot of it is unfortunately based on Sick professional, sick professional advice as well.
1: Sick profitable
0: professional advice. very well put,
1: very well put. Uh, And then you look at the numbers and you discover that the suicide rate amongst those who have pursued such conduct is stunningly higher, at least 20 percent higher than the general population, uh, 5, 10, 15 years down the road.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My heart broke when I saw testimony on this. Well, anyway, we'll come back to that point in a minute. I, John, I, I did want to follow up on the, the larger philosophical point we were having on the point that you made, the paternalism and cynicism that so many on the left hold that, well, they can't think for themselves or they can't you know, decide for themselves and they shouldn't be empowered to know these things. There's an interesting counterweight to that. That's going on in the Republican Party right now. Mike Pence gave a speech today decrying populism in the conservative movement. And I always get a little nervous when people wholesale dismiss populism. And you can straighten me out if I'm wrong on this, because I think populism can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. It's populism by and for and who what. Barry Goldwater, in many respects, spoke to a populist impulse. Ronald Reagan, in many respects, spoke to a populist impulse. There's no question Donald Trump did. It's for what and on behalf of what. It, to me, doesn't always have to be a negative word. We still think, at the end of the day, in a representative democracy, yes, representative democracy. The people still do rule here, and they have a say in their government, right? I mean, they get to have a say. And just because it appeals to something that a large or vast proportion of the population believes is being ignored, and a vast population here does think they are being ignored, and they think that because they are being ignored, populism isn't always necessarily a bad thing. It just depends on the channeling of it. That's my view. You can straighten me out on this if you want.
1: I don't think I can straighten you out. I I think I largely agree, uh, to the extent that populism means that the ultimate power should and does rest with the people. Then I agree, um, especially if the alternative is collectivism. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the it, it is populism with respect to what. If it means populism, meaning individuals are responsible for making their own decisions, then I think that is the best society. And that is what Senator Goldwater spoke out for, that freedom works, that sure, uh, an element of society, well, all of society and some elements of a society more than others will make mistakes if they're allowed to make their own decisions. But the that posts or posits the question, should we let them make their make some mistakes because they're making their own decisions and learn from those mistakes? And will the net benefit for all of society from that course of conduct be better than the opposite, which is, oh my god, if we allowed people to select their own health plans rather than having their employer pick their health plan, or if we allowed people to pick their own doctors rather than letting their employer pick the doctor, uh, that would be awful because we all know they're not smart enough to know which doctor to pick or which uh, health care plan to pick. And, and that just what that does is it begins to put someone between you and the consequences of your conduct. Yes. You know, in my view, once you do that, you're perverting human nature and you're. Empowering some and disempowering others, which is not what I believe God intended.
0: Right. And that kind of explained the Goldwater movement and kind of shift of the Republican Party. As much as it seems to me the Reagan effort did in the late 70s, they came about because people thought that they no longer had they were no longer being listened to, that someone didn't care about their issues. I mean, the entire... Building of the New Right from National Review in the 1950s to the Goldwater Movement, that whole maybe decade, was really very much about um, remote bureaucrats and institutions that thought paternalistically not only they knew better, but were doing things that vast populations in this country not only didn't agree with but had no say on you think about it with the united nations in those days or you thought about it with a lot of international organizations the united states was signing up for and signing up to and you thought about it with perhaps a lot of these alphabet soups that were that were residual uh, legatees of the uh, of the new deal right this is this is really what the new right was started to oppose and to the degree that old-school Republican Eisenhower, Nixonian, Jerry Ford Republicanism was 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 thrown out in favor of Goldwater-Reagan Republicanism, it was precisely because they spoke to people who disagreed with those things where the establishment at the time had no problem going along with it.
1: I, I think you nailed it. I mean, I think if you look at uh, that, the emergence of conservatism, really— Uh, maybe it's the new right, maybe it was new conservatism, but I view it as conservatism,
0: period. Yes. Um,
1: Originated with Buckley kind of drawing a line in the sand, Goldwater and then Reagan. Uh, That all occurred in the wake of FDR. And what FDR had posited was that if people are suffering, then government should be the remedy. Prior to that, when people were suffering or when people needed help it was the responsibility of other people so you so you learned that you know in the early days of the frontier if someone new came along and they were going to they bought some land and they were going to farm next to you you actually went over and helped them raise their barn. You know, it wasn't the government that took pity on them. It wasn't the, the obligation of a wiser set of people uh, residing in Washington, D.C., who knew what would be best for them. It was their friends and neighbors who owed it to them as peers in the society to be helpful to in the Judeo-Christian tradition to assist their neighbors because tomorrow it could be them. And so Buckley came along and said, now, wait a minute, you know, we've now gone a decade or more without thinking about the consequences of government stepping in. But one of the consequences was government didn't do what the people wanted. Government did what the smart thinkers in Washington, the smart thinkers in government wanted. And it's been our role ever since.
0: Thank you, John Chaddock. Beautiful. Portions of the show brought to you by our good friends at Y-Refi. It's a great uh, investment with a lot of freedom. And if you're concerned about stock market volatility or inflation or the talk of a recession, uh, Y-Refi's investment is uh, in a portfolio that's not correlated or tied to the stock market or the federal Reserve it 's a secure collateralized portfolio where you can turn your income on or off, you can compound it whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees, and you can earn up to a ten point two five percent fixed rate of return that 's right up to ten point two five percent fixed rate of return If you need your money back at any time there 's no reduction or attack on principal, and you get a monthly statement of course, with no surprises they 're based here locally. Scott still wrote in the one-on-one. Feel free to stop by. They invite that. You won't get a sales pitch there. They won't ask you to sign anything. Or you can check them out online at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then ref com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-24. 888-Y-REFI-24. Just during the break, I was pulling up the Edmund Burke uh, quote, and uh, John, uh, John 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 Shadd credits a mutual friend of ours, Steve, who gave him a plaque on this. But um, here's the quote that Edmund Burke gave to the speech of the electors of Bristol. Certainly, gentlemen, it ought to be the happiness and glory of representatives to live in the the strictest union, the closest correspondence, and the most unreserved communication with his constituents. Their wishes ought to have great weight with him. Their opinion, high respect. Their business, unremitted attention. It is his duty to sacrifice his repose, his pleasures— his satisfaction to theirs, and above all, ever and in all cases, to prefer, to prefer their interests to his own. But his unbiased opinion, his mature judgment, his enlightened conscience, he ought not to sacrifice to you, to any man or to any set of men living. These he does not derive from your pleasure, no, nor from the law and the Constitution. They are a trust from providence for the abuse of which he is deeply answerable your representative owes you not his industry only but his judgment and he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion there are deep waters under that sentiment the kind John and I were just talking about, that got not only to the difference between a Republican form of government or a republic and a democracy, but as John was very well in articulately putting it, to the nature of really all governments that we would respect and representation that we would respect. Well, thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us, Mr. Dahl. Thank you. And until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all. Class is dismissed.